When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of an online think tank of important emerging ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On this podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here necessarily expecting to discuss. My guest today is Peter Godfrey-Smith. He's a distinguished professor of philosophy at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and a professor of the history and philosophy of science at the University of Sydney in Australia. He has also spent a lot of time floating around in an octopus colony in Australia studying smart cephalopods and taking photos and videos that have been used by National Geographic. His fascinating new book is called Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. Welcome to Think Again, Peter. Thank you. So let's begin with the greatest cephalopodic controversy of them all, octopuses versus octopi. (laughs) Octopuses is essentially correct. Okay. Uh, So octopus is, it's not a Latin word, it's a Greek word. Uh, So if you were going to do a classical plural, it would be octopodes. Uh, I'm not sure if that's actually exactly the right Greek pronunciation, but it would be essentially octopodes. So octopi is a sort of mix of Latin and Greek that is very much against the rules. And octopodes would be nauseatingly pedantic in normal conversation. You really can't say octopodes all the time. It would, and (laughs) octopi is kind of a nice word but it's thought just too far from acceptability. So octopuses is the, is, okay. is the way we go. Okay, good. I'm glad we've solved that. Now to the meteor stuff. So why are octopuses and some of the larger cuttlefish, but your book focuses primarily on octopuses, so interesting to a philosopher of mind? What, what makes them especially fascinating? The most important thing about them is their place in the history, the history of the evolutionary history of animal life in general and in particular the history of animals that have large brains and complex behavior. Suppose you just collect in your mind all the animals you normally think of as smart animals. Right. So you, know, you might have in there a dolphin, a uh, chimp, right. uh, various kinds of birds, crows and parrots. And you ask what was the most recent common ancestor in evolutionary terms of right. those animals. What did it look like? You know, when did it live? How different was it from something like us? And the answer you get is, well, once we've included birds on that list, you go quite a way back to find the most recent common ancestor. For birds, uh, very roughly, what are we talking? A couple hundred million years? Yeah, or? two seventy, three hundred, okay. three hundred odd, I think, okay. uh, would be about right. And more importantly, the animal you would find there, if you sort of traced all the evolutionary lines back, you know, and found that common ancestor, it would look like a sort of lizard-like animal, something you 
would recognize as a familiar sort of thing. It lived on land, it had you know, eyes like ours, a brain of quite a lot like ours. It was recognizably similar to all the downstream stuff. Right. But then if you recognize that octopuses are very smart animals, and you ask the same question that we asked with them in the collection of animals for whom we're looking for the common ancestor, you have to go twice as far back in time to find the common ancestor. You go back to about 600 million years. You know, and, and that's very early in the history of animal life. Right. It's a time when nothing lived on land, no animals lived on land. The most complicated things around were probably jellyfish-like This animals. is pre-Cambrian. Pre-Cambrian, that's right. right. Yep. And the animal you would find, the, the common ancestor sort of sitting there waiting in, in a sense to give rise to all of those different animals, might have been, you know, millimeters long, a very small animal shaped like a kind of flattened worm, most likely. Right. And so what that means is, um, given that that's the most recent common ancestor of both us, chimps, dolphins, birds, and octopuses, there's been, in a sense, two big evolutionary experiments in the evolution of large nervous systems. Yeah. There's the vertebrate one, because right. all those first animals were vertebrates, and then there's this one other one where among the invertebrate animals on that other side of the evolutionary tree, you've just got this one case where very large nervous systems evolved and that makes it an important animal. It means we, we have more than one case to look at when we think about how the evolution of complex behavior and large brains works. We can ask questions like, do you get the same thing both times? Do you get something radically different? Right. And you make the point that, you know, although we are all Earth creatures, you know, one way you might think about this is that, like, how, if you were to think of how alien consciousness might evolve on another planet, I mean, you're seeing a completely, not completely separate, but a, a, a largely separate neural system developing. I guess you, one would caution against, you know, making any assumptions that, that therefore we're going to get something very like humans or octopuses on some other Earth-like planet, but... That's right, we get, some, we get something surprisingly different. <laughs> um, and it's true that when science fiction people have thought about aliens of various kinds historically, mm. they've often thought in a way that's, in retrospect, can be seen as disappointingly close to home. Right. Most of the aliens that people think about are pretty clearly vertebrates, a lot of them look like primates of one sort or another. Right. The idea of radically different body plans has only occasionally been explored. Was explored, incidentally, in the recent film Arrival. Which I have not yet seen, so no spoilers. Okay, okay. okay. Well, I think I can, I think that's <laughs> okay. a safe, I think that's a safe thing to say. But they yeah, did, yeah. in that film, they did, they did think carefully about how you might have a very different body plan. I mean, like, but their eyes, my mother's an ophthalmo a trained ophthalmologist who went into other areas in her career, but, like, the eyes, that's pretty fascinating, that octopus eyes evolved to be, albeit the, I guess, visual cortex or brain, whatever they have that's the equivalent is different from ours, the eyes have evolved very similarly to ours. The eye itself is very similar, and yeah. that's a, a rightly famous case of convergent evolution, where you would have started very different and yeah. wound up quite similar. So the, the complex nervous system of the octopus and also of the cuttlefish, which is less 
well-studied, the giant one. I mean, there's a lot of things to say about it, but it raises some interesting questions that you delve into in the book about sort of what we mean by intelligence, what consciousness is at various stages. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what do we know? I mean, we obviously can't talk to an octopus directly. So what, what do we know about how they think and what their minds are like? We don't know that much. And partly because it's hard to know what the right questions are to ask and, and how to study them. Myself, I tend to approach these questions just by looking at, at complex and novel behaviors, at, at behaviors that suggest there's a lot going on inside, right. uh, both in laboratory settings and, and in the field. It's also possible to approach the question by looking more closely at the brain. I tend to think less in those terms, partly because I just don't know enough neurobiology to really, I think, be helpful. Uh, looking at it from that angle, but partly also because I think you know the lesson here is that you can do similar things with very different resources, with very different brain structures. People occasionally look for mappings between parts of their brain and parts of our brain. I think a lot of the time we should expect there not to be good mappings and expect the ones that are there to occasionally be misleading because given that they've started again evolutionarily and built a complex brain from a very simple one, on a different track from us, we should expect all sorts of surprising differences. Right. So given that, I, I think primarily in terms of behavior and look for behaviors that are sort of reasonable marks of sophistication, involving right. flexibility, recognition of individual objects and people is an interesting case uh, that's been looked at recently. They, yeah, interestingly, it seems that they don't, they're a little difficult to study in laboratory settings, I guess, uh, although those studies have been done. But it seems like a lot of the most interesting examples that you give in the book are anecdotal. You know, like in the laboratory, they're doing sort of behavioral experiments on octopuses, and they are learning things. But a lot of the, a lot of the anecdotes that you tell, I find particularly interesting, you know, them shooting the lights out and such. Uh. They are. I mean, to, to, to some extent, I think if you talk to people in many parts of animal behavior, they'll, they'll tell you a similar story. They'll say, yeah, we, we work out what we want the animal to do, and we have a sort of test that we think of as a reasonable test. Mm -hmm. But then once you're, once you're there in the lab with the animal, you can tell that what we think is a sort of relevant setup for them actually is not, or what we think is interesting to them is not. And they'll do something that just shows that you were not thinking clearly. Or not, right. You were thinking clearly, but you weren't recognizing how the world appears to them. Now, I think that's true with a lot of animals who are studied behaviorally in labs. With octopuses, though, the problem is just enormous. All sorts of routine things that people expect to be able to do when they study animal behavior just don't work very well. A lot of octopuses, they don't like to work for food in the way that pigeons and rats will sort of work all day for small amounts of pretty low quality food. Octopuses are not interested in that. They often find the apparatus of the lab far more interesting <laughs> than the stuff that they're supposed to be interacting with. So there's a lovely anecdote. One of the first guys to do sort of classic behavioral experiments in a lab with octopuses was a Harvard guy who went to Italy to the Naples Marine Station and he set up a, he set up the same kind of apparatus that he would set up for studying rats or pigeons at Harvard in a study of learning by reinforcement you know can an animal learn to do something that it gets rewarded for right and the standard apparatus that he'd learned to use from his his mentor BF Skinner 
It had various things, including a light and a lever, and you had to sort of pull the lever when the light went on in order to get a reward and things like that. All that stuff usually works fine with animals <laughs> like pigeons. With octopuses, well, the first thing to say is that he found you know, huge variability. One octopus did not behave like another, but one particular octopus led to enormous difficulties because what it most wanted to do was destroy the apparatus. <laughs> so it would reach out of the tank and try to pull the lever apparatus into the tank. It, it broke it eventually. Octopuses are remarkably strong animals. They don't look that strong, but they're all muscle. Uh, yeah, they, you're talking about how they, they can tear clam sh clams open. Just pull it apart, yeah, that's right. Incredible. Once they work out that they're strong enough to do that. Right. Now, the ones who can do that are big octopuses. That okay. was a giant Pacific okay. octopus. But even an octopus about the size of a football, I've occasionally been in a sort of tug-of-war situations with those guys, and it's amazing how strong they are. I mean, a, mm. a person who weighs much, much more than they do has to apply a lot of strength in order to get it to do what you want it to do. Right. And, yeah, and one of them, I think, was taking... The, I forget the fellow's name, but the guy that you dive with sometimes, uh, David is, is uh, or, sorry, it was Matthew. Matthew, yes, yeah. he's like grabbing him by the arm and sort of leading him on on a, a non-utilitarian tour of the octopus. I mean, that behavior is that. completely mysterious. To me. <laughs> uh, we've got no idea why that happened. So the octopus, yeah, yeah it took his arm and just mm -hmm. sort of ambled off. The only explanation I can think of for why that might have happened is a somewhat sort of deflationary explanation. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible that the arm grabbed Matt, the rest of the body didn't sort of, didn't realize that or forgot. Right, I'm sorry, we should say for the listeners that, that one of the major differences in the octopus neurological system is that, from humans, is that there, while there is something like a brain, the arms also seem to have in independent ganglia or clusters of nerves that in a sense the arms have minds of their own minds of their own is is, is probably too strong okay right. it's, it's a sort of tempting phrase to use okay but probably too strong they do have a lot of neurons in them two-thirds of the neurons in an octopus uh, are in the arms and just one-third is in the central brain area insofar as i've got any story to tell about why this octopus took matt for a <laughs> a, a 20 minute walk it would be that perhaps, yeah, the arm grabbed him and the rest of the animal just went about its business and Matt was brought along for the ride. Right. When you picture this, you, shouldn't, you should picture Matt, who's a very big guy, he's about six foot five, and you should pic picture an object that big being pulled along by an octopus, you know, smaller than a football. Last thing I guess I want to say about this, like, there's something I find, and I think a lot of people find, dispiriting about classic behaviorist or evolutionary explanations for every aspect of consciousness that is in utilitarian terms to say that basically everything that we do or we think is serving some kind of evident biological purpose. I felt like you were hinting at some aspects maybe of octopus consciousness and curiosity, which while they're adaptive for it evolutionarily, also seem to exist in their own right, like play for the sake of play. People have occasionally wondered in the octopus case whether there's just so much brain power there, so much intelligence there, that it might be a really dramatic case of a situation where intelligence evolved by accident, didn't have a function in evolutionary terms. I doubt that, partly because brains are very expensive things. Uh, they take a lot of energy to run. You would expect if there was a kind of 
excess there that it would get pruned back in evolutionary terms. Uh, so I agree, right, I think octopuses pretty clearly engage in play and it has been, I think, at least you know, argued by people who studied this that it does not look as if the octopuses are just continually trying to work out whether something can be eaten, you know, trying to find out a way to eat it. It's not like that. Right, so is that something that counts as a kind of a genuinely functionless feature? In a sense it might, but in a sense not. You can think of play as a consequence or an aspect of an octopus's exploratory nature. Octopuses mm, like mm. novelty. They are interested in new things and that makes sense ecologically because as hunters they're always roaming around. They have uh, usually a reasonable variety of kinds of food that they're willing to eat and some of those kinds of food require a certain amount of manipulation and messing around to try to get into them. So if you take an animal who has evolved to be open to novelty and you put it in a situation where there's something really novel. One thing I've found that octopuses just can't get enough of is tape measures. They'll often try to take them away. Now I think pretty clearly an octopus will work out that this is not edible. I mean they can, with their suckers, everything they touch they can also taste. And I think pretty quickly the metal would show itself to be inedible. Right. But that doesn't make it any less interesting. So that exploratory creativity may be like evolutionary, evolutionarily adaptive for them, but in the particular moment when they're playing with a tape measure, they're just playing with the tape measure, it seems like. I mean, play is probably the right word to use, or at least not a bad word to use. I think exploration is uh -huh. a good word uh -huh. to use. I think an animal willing to explore will often find a new source of food, so that makes sense ecologically. Right. But the exploratory nature of their behavioural tendencies is just all over the place. You see it expressed in situations where food's not really that relevant. And there's so much more to say about all of this, but I think we should get on to the second part of the show where we use our exploratory consciousness to look at some surprise videos from our producers. Uh, so this one is Michio Kaku, a theoretical physicist and author, and the video is called why Physics Ends the Free Will Debate. Newtonian determinism says that the universe is a clock, a gigantic clock that's wound up at the beginning of time, and it's been ticking ever since according to Newton's laws of motion. So, what you're going to eat 10 years from now, on January 1st, has already been fixed. It's already known using Newton's laws of motion. Einstein believed in that. Einstein was a determinist. Does that mean that a murderer this horrible mass murderer isn't really guilty of his works because it was already preordained billions of years ago. And Einstein said, well, yeah, in some sense that's true. Even mass murderers were predetermined, but he said they should still be placed in jail. Heisenberg then comes along and proposes the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and says, nonsense. There's uncertainty. You don't know where the electron is. It could be here, here, or many places simultaneously. This, of course, Einstein hated because he said God doesn't play dice with the universe. Well, hey, get used to it. Einstein was wrong. God does play dice. Every time we look at an electron, it moves. There's uncertainty with regards to the position of the electron. So what does that mean for free will? It means in some sense we do have some kind of free will. No one can determine your future events given your 
past history. There's always the wild card. There's always the possibility of uncertainty in whatever we do. So when I look at myself in a mirror, I say to myself, what I'm looking at is not really me. It looks like me, but it's not really me at all. It's not me today, now. It's me a billionth of a second ago, because it takes a billionth of a second for light to go from me to the mirror and back. Well, my main reaction is that I don't think it's true that the particular physical options that he sketches have the kind of mapping onto conclusions about free will that he supposes. Firstly, let's take the a sort of clock, clockwork universe scenario. Right. Uh, now, there I agree that whatever free will might be, there's a, at least an initial surprise or threat to that notion that comes from a universe in which the laws plus the conditions very far in the past make it the case that only one future is possible now so that I either, either will or will not do a particular action in a manner that it was determined long before I even existed. Well, assuming that's, that's the case. Well, I'm saying if, yeah, yeah. if, yeah, if, if that's the world the is like that, right, right. then I agree that right. there's a certain amount of threat to free will. Right. I don't agree, though, that if we move to an indeterministic scenario of the sort that he was describing, that suddenly things get a lot better with okay. respect to free will. The kind of picture of the universe that was being described is one in which you know, you've got a bunch of stuff that happens now, and there's, uh, at the physical level, right. several or many different things that might happen next, and whichever one is actualized comes about really for no reason at all. There's, there's no reason why this future rather than that future right. uh, becomes actual. If we have total indeterminacy at the like subatomic level, yeah. If, yeah. if it's true that right. as a general physical right. fact, the condition of the universe at one time does not determine a single unique future as a consequence right, right, of the right. laws. Now, the professor was saying, you know, if if it was like that, then free will is back, and we could feel more comfortable about the way we talk about human action and blame right. and punishment and so on. But I don't think that's true. I think. The world I just described would be a world in which when someone does a particular action rather than another action, there's really nothing that explains why they did what they did. Nothing, literally <laughs> nothing. It's not that it came from their character or it came from their volition in a way that does not apply on the clockwork universe. Right. Rather, events are just sort of purely, they just happen in the strongest possible sense of just happen. And okay. I think that free will, as it has been traditionally understood, which involves a kind of responsibility for the actions that people produce and so on, the free will of the kind that's traditionally pictured is just as endangered on the kind of indeterministic universe that was being described as it is on the more deterministic option. I see. But why would it be, I mean, and maybe that's not what you're saying, but why would it be either or? Why if there's indeterminacy, you know, at the subatomic level or in the physics of the universe, why would that then obviate or counteract any will-based trajectories? I mean, like, that is to say, if I, like, it's not like everything then totally becomes unpredictable. I mean, I might do something and my action is a cause which, which might have an effect, right? 
Yes, right. What it would mean, though, is that what you described as the will-based trajectories, right. those, I mean, those things from the point of view of physics are a great multitude of tiny events and processes, many of them taking place in your brain. Right. So a trajectory is a kind of a path taken by a whole bunch of these processes. Right. Uh, I think this, this term you used, will-based trajectory, is, it's, it's quite a nice term because that is sort of what we want free will, people normally want free will to involve, the, the existence of such things. And what I'm objecting to in the clip is the idea that if our brains at the lowest physical level really do have a kind of clockwork character, a fully deterministic, right. that if that was true, then genuine will in the will-based trajectories would suddenly become an illusion. Right. Whereas if, once we look at the lowest level, there are these tiny causal gaps where things just happen for no reason at all, I'm resisting the idea that that would allow will-based trajectories to somehow be more real or more genuine. Right, that just admits randomness, not choice, right? I mean, that is to say that those gaps, that indeterminacy, that admits the possibility of randomness, but not necessarily of choice in the sense of free will. It, it or, would, right, it would, it would be randomness. That's right, what we would right, get. Right, right, uh, right, right. And so the word choice refers to a very macroscopic thing. I mean, to have a choice, you've got to have a chooser, and the chooser is a big, complicated system like a brain or something mm. like that. Choice is not something that can exist at the lowest physical level. Right. At that level, all we've got is, I mean, here I'm just using the language the physicist uses. Right. Roughly speaking, either it's clockwork or else it's random. Things just happen with a probability distribution, right. but with no, no sense in which one thing makes it the case that the next has to happen. Okay. Uh, so in a way, what we're talking about here is the, the physical basis for what's normally called choice. And on one view, the physical basis is deterministic. And on the other view, choice is a thing whose physical basis includes indeterminism. Right. And I'm saying... If you are bothered by the first picture, you should be just as bothered by the second picture, if not more bothered. Does that mean, or do you think that means, that at the physical level, there couldn't necessarily be a model of the physical universe that would correspond to what we think of as free will at the mac macro level? I mean, that those are the two options open to physicists, are either determinism or indeterminism at the material level, and neither of those makes free will less problematic. So does that mean that like physics can't explain it? I think quite a few philosophers who work on free will would agree with a version of what you just said. They would say, when someone makes a choice, right. this involves a whole bunch of stuff in their brain. Right. If we look closely at what happens in their brain, very, very closely at the level of fundamental physics, if it was deterministic, that seems alarming with respect to free will. Sure. If it's indeterministic, it also seems alarming for somewhat different reasons, because it means the things that happened had no explanation of a certain kind at all. Now, probably most philosophers who work on this topic, right. and I'm here being careful to <laughs> position myself in a state of uncertainty, because I I'm, myself, I do not know what I think about this. Okay. But most philosophers who work on this, I think they would go through a chain of thought like the following. They'd think, oh, right. When I think about a deterministic physical basis for my choice, that seems bad for the reality of choice. Then when I think about an indeterministic physics at the lowest level, 
That still seems bad. Right. What that seems to show is that I've made a mistake somewhere. And maybe I should rethink the first thing I thought. And probably the majority of philosophers who work on free will are what are known as compatibilists, or at least the majority of philosophers. Maybe the ones who are compatibilists don't tend to work on it. But compatibilism is the idea that free will is compatible with a deterministic universe. Okay. And that if you ask what makes an action free, it has to do with the way the action was the product of genuine beliefs and desires and reasoning processes mm -hmm. within an agent. Okay. As long as an action was produced by a certain psychological path, that path may also involve physical processes that are deterministic, but that's okay. It doesn't make any difference. Right, that's, right. That's probably the view that probably most philosophers have. And I, I've, I've gone backwards and forwards for decades on this because that's the kind of convenient option. Once you see that, you think, right, the character of the low-level physics doesn't matter that much to free will. It doesn't matter that much. I mean, I feel like I'm. I feel like resistant to what feels like I'm being bullied by a materialist, reductionist approach to something that may be a more complex phenomenon. But I guess you can't get around it. If you're a philosopher, you actually have to deal with this. You, you, don't, you don't. You don't have to be a materialist about it. So right. So both both me and the Material. professor yeah. in the clip are both assuming a materialist worldview where. Once the physics of the world are set, there's nothing else that can make things happen. There's no immaterial right. or non-physical events right, that right, could right. add something. Now, if you're a dualist, then you might think that the physical world does its thing and occasionally a kind of pure soul or spirit or pure mind makes an extra contribution in a way that's wholly free. Then you're fine with respect to what the physics is like. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is whether, and you know, we're not going to solve this right now, but whether there could be emergent properties of physical systems that behave in ways that are different from the underlying physics, or that, you know, mind and human behavior, you know, whether when the underlying physics comes together and certain patterns and behaviors appear that are more complex on top of that, can they behave in different ways? Is that possible? Is that... I, I think both sides of the discussion here with respect to myself and the physicist would agree that emergence is real in a kind of very low-key sense. I mean, there can be all sorts of properties of big collections of matter that are not properties that the small parts have. Right, so, right. And, and these include things which are not at all mysterious. You know, surface tension in water, in a cup of water, you've got right. surface tension that enables insects to walk on water. That is a kind of emergent property in a very low-key sense of emergent. Gotcha. In the sense that no individual water molecule has surface tension. Right. An individual water molecule has very different properties, and you put a bunch of them together in a glass, and you will get surface tension. So properties can appear at the macroscopic level without being present themselves at the lower level. But as the case of surface tension of water shows, that can be a very physically understandable you know, no big deal kind of phenomenon. If when someone says emergent, they mean something much more than that, if they mean a property that has uh, a kind of causal power that's at odds with the underlying physics, then I would say, you know, I don't think those <laughs> that things sounds exist. Crazy. Yeah, yeah okay. I don't think those things exist. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I, I think that was fascinating, but I think let's, we'll draw a line under that and see what the next one's got to offer. 
This is Bill Nye, formerly known as Bill Nye the Science Guy, and the video is called Hey Bill Nye, which extinct animal would you like to see alive again? Hello, Mr. Nye. My question is that even though it would never happen, if you could go back in time to observe any prehistoric animal or animals, which would it be? For me, it would be the giant arthropods of the Carboniferous. Well, Christian, uh, this is a fabulous hypothetical question, but let's say we didn't go prehistoric. Let's say we went historic. The animal that I would like to see is the is stellar sea cow. This is a marine mammal, apparently very much like a, uh, a uh, manatee, but lived in saltwater in the Bering Sea in, in, uh, off uh, Alaska or uh, Siberia. And this thing was driven to extinction not too long ago, in the 1700s. And I could imagine an extraordinary technology that would take the bones of one of these creatures, which are in certain collections, and somehow reproduce effectively enough the DNA of that animal and have, have him or her come back and uh, start over again. Because that animal very recently was in the ecosystem up there, I say up there, uh, in Alaska, Siberia, the Barents Sea perhaps, that uh, it, would be, it might be a great thing to actually reintroduce it to the ecosystem and it would be a spectacular deal. As far as going way back in time, what sells in movies? Giant ancient dinosaurs. I give you though the, the huge millipedes that you were talking about, Christian, that, that's cool, uh, but that uh, it's not first on my list. We'll see how it goes. That's a cool question. We could start anywhere with this. Is there a, an ancient or recent creature you'd like to go visit if you could? Yeah, I'll, I would want to go uh, much further back than either the questioner or Bill Nye. I mean, those giant arthropods of the Carboniferous are certainly a, a good candidate, but the ones I would most like to see are the animals that exist at the crucial branching points uh, in the tree of life. So one of those would be the common ancestor that we share with octopuses and... That worm-like thing. Yeah. yeah. That worm-like thing. Uh, so it wouldn't be as interesting to look at in real time, I suspect, as the giant arthropods. But it would be very interesting to see, you know, what was the beginning from which so much came? You're back about 600 million years ago. You have a, a population of these things living right. in the sea, either swimming or crawling or both. Perhaps probably not burrowing, probably swimming or crawling. Right. And for some reason, that population splits into two, so we get two species from one. And then they start to live differently on the two sides. Then you get further splits and so on. And eventually, you get two enormous branches of the tree of life. We shouldn't think of those as essentially vertebrates and invertebrates. We're talking about the ancestor of deuterostomes, which include us, but also some invertebrates like starfish. Right. And protostomes, which include the insects and the mollusks and the earthworms and things like that. So that's the first one I'd like to see. But while we're going back, then there'd be at least two more stops as we head down the branches of the tree that I would like to make. So sometime earlier than that, we get the first animal with a nervous system. Right. Whereas in the case of the 
common ancestor of us and octopuses, people can draw a little sketch, they can at least make some educated guesses. People have to be much, much more cautious with respect to the first animal that had a nervous system. It was quite possibly jellyfish-like. I mean, that's a reasonable thing to be picturing. What, what needs to be present to have a nervous system? Like, how many nerves do you need? Or are you, is it about whether some central nerve is communicating with peripheral nerves? Just any or? nerves at all. So okay. a, a nerve is a particular kind of cell and we're talking about the first animals that had some of those. Right. Now the first animals to have some probably had quite a few. Right. So one is no, not much use on its own. So you would have gone gr very gradually in sort of probably insensible steps from having cells that can engage in some more rudimentary kinds of communication with each other in real time to cells that are more and more specialized for that function and then eventually you have cells that are recognizable as nerve cells in a network right. coordinating the actions of the body. So I'd like to see And that was one of the most that, that was one of the most interesting things I thought about, you know, about your book was the, you know, attempt to trace the early origins of consciousness, I guess beginning with cells communicating in very rudimentary ways with one another chemically externally and then and then if I'm saying this right, I mean sort of clustering into multicellular organisms that communicate internally mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then between one another. And then those processes of communication, both internal and external, becoming more complex over time. Right. You know, that that's sort of how, one way of looking at how consciousness emerges even from single-celled organisms. I, I know that's a pretty big statement, but, I guess. Right, the last thing was a pretty big statement. Okay. I mean, but, 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 but though I think it's, I think it's, I think it's probably not far from being <laughs> right. Uh, so if you're thinking about the history of behaviour in animals, then the sketch you gave that is essentially what happened. Now, which aspects of that process were the ones specifically responsible for consciousness? That'll require a little more work. Yes, un and unfortunately the podcast is only an hour and not several decades long, so I think that's a good place for us to wrap it up. Peter Godfrey-Smith, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. I really enjoyed this. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for another episode of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Over the past year, I've read about as many books as there have been episodes of this show. Um, most of my guests have just written a book, and I read all of them. So, I wanted to recommend just a few of them, those that stuck with me the most. First, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion by Paul Bloom, who's going to be on the show next week. It is a very powerful and provocative book, it made me think a lot. Hagseed by Margaret Atwood, her retelling of The Tempest. Time Travel, A History by James Glick, which goes through the history of the concept of time travel as a cultural artifact. Nutshell, which is Ian McEwan's retelling of Hamlet, a lot of Shakespeare retellings here. Jonathan Keats's book, You Belong to the Universe, which is about Buckminster Fuller. Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War by Mary Roach, very, very funny and intense and detailed. And lastly, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus by Douglas Rushkoff, which tries to do a complete reimagining of how we might organize our society and our economy for the future. 
Have a wonderful holiday, everyone, and we'll be back next week with Paul Bloom. See you then. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.